Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where we talk about the games that we've recently played. Although, this is a feature episode, and this episode we're going to talk about the three games that will never leave our collection. And on this episode are The Cardboard Kid, Jake Cormier of Off The Page Games, The Tabletop Bellhop, Definitely a board game podcast. Dice and Dragons. Board on the Air. The Meeple Dungeon. Of Dice and Men. Moats Art Games. Board and Game. And Cardboard Conjecture. Always remember to check out the show notes for the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. Have fun. This is going to be a great episode. Cardboard Kid. If you don't know me, I'm 11 years old and have reviewed games on YouTube since April 2017. I have close to 300 reviews, plus dozens of interviews and features. My latest was this past Friday, The Key, Murder at the Oakdale Club. I'm not sure if I'm going to keep making board game videos, or board game anything really, but I wanted to be a part of this special episode of What You've Been Playing Wednesday to talk about a few games that I don't see ever leaving our collection. I'm going to leave out games we assign by creators or rare prototypes because those are obviously sticking around for other reasons. I'm instead going to focus on games that either mean so much to us or give us such a unique experience that we can't see anything else topping it. Arkham Horror the card game scratches a couple of itches. Co-op, horror, hand management, and narrative games. It also has about a thousand expansions, which are kind of needed to extend the life, but if you have a few, yeah, you can play this over and over and over, like we have. You can also construct decks, which is like a game itself, and there's the ability to gain experience and upgrade those decks to give yourself a better chance to survive new adventures. The pursuit of happiness generates endless amounts of stories thanks to the amount of content in its base game, let alone the expansions we have. We've been playing this one for four years now, and the clever worker placement, efficiency engine, and game end mechanism are going to have us continue to play it for a long time. Stockpile isn't leaving our collection because it's the one game I always beat my parents at. I'm going to dip it in resin and frame it on my wall until the end of time. Of course, that means I won't be able to play, and therefore win, this extremely clever bidding and stock management game, or enjoy its push-your-luck elements, or its buffing and set collection aspects. Unless I buy another copy, of course. Which I will. That's about all for now. If you want to see photos and updates on what I'm playing, follow me on Twitter at Cardboard underscore Kid. For weekly reviews, check out my YouTube channel, The Cardboard Kid. Please stay safe. Happy gaming! Hi there, my name is Jay Cormier from Off the Page Games, publisher of the game Mind Management, which, you know, I would put in my list of top three games not 
ever leaving my collection. But let's do this a little bit more honestly and uh, choose games that aren't ones that I designed or published. Um, I would have to choose Carcassonne as one of them. Uh, I've got a lot of expansions. I, I even created a, my own little case for them so that it's easier to kind of sort all of my expansions. Same thing with Dominion. I've uh, got a case with all the cards separated and makes it, again, easier to play. And my third one would be Time's Up uh, because uh, it is my go-to party game when I have a lot of people. It is always a laugh, and I always have a, a lot of fun with that game. So those are my three. Maybe not super exciting um, if I were to uh, be allowed to pick games I've designed, it would have to be Mind Management, which has uh, just been released. Um, Akrotiri, I guess, would be uh, up there. And In the Hall of the Mountain King would be my three of the games that I designed. If, if I'm allowed to, you know, cheat or sh shameless self-promotion. <laughs> That's it. Thanks a lot. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. You can find me at TabletopBellhop.com and all over the internet and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. If you've got a gaming or game night question for me to answer, send that to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or visit the webpage and click on Ask the Bellhop. Now, normally the question I'd be answering right now is what you've been playing this past week and talking about games of Unfair, Tapestry, Lanterns, Dice, Aroma, and Circle of Six. But my Canadian peers decided it would be cool to do a top three episode this week instead. So tonight I'll be sharing the top three games that I expect will never leave my collection, starting with Talisman, the Magical Quest game, 2nd Edition. Way back in the 80s, Talisman 2nd Edition by Games Workshop was the first board game I ever bought with my own money, my allowance at the time. I picked it up from a local hobby shop at the mall called Leisure World. Any other fellow Canucks remember Leisure World? This was a hobby store mostly, about trains and model kits, but our local store actually had one row, one shelf, that had a small game section with stuff like D&D, Avalon Hill bookshelf games, and more. They also, for whatever reason, had a number of Games Workshop games. Now, when I got Talisman, I knew nothing about it, or Games Workshop, or the Warhammer world, or what it was based in, on. In fact, Talisman is what got me into those worlds and that company, which has gotten a lot of my money over the years. It ended up the game was nothing like anything else I played before. It had RPG elements that reminded me of my dad's copy of Dungeons and Dragons and playing Bard's Tale on the Amiga. There was lots of variability. Every game played differently. The art was fantastic. The background information was so cool. What's a Chaos Warrior? I was in love. I went on to collect absolutely everything they ever published for that edition of Talisman including many of the Citadel miniatures. I think I was missing five by the end. Now, I still have a lot of nostalgic feelings for that second edition of Talisman, and I don't expect that to change ever. Though even I have to admit the game is dated and can go on for far too long. And I will say the newer editions have improved on that a lot, but I still love my old copy from 1983. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition is my second game from tonight's list. 
And the fact I got into that is a direct result of the first game on this list. Talisman led me to buying other games that had the Talisman logo on the side. And I always had the little Talisman, it would say, from the makers of Talisman. I'm like, gotta buy that. That led me to discover games like Dungeon Quest, Fury of Dracula, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, and more. Eventually, I started buying White Dwarf Magazine because it had additional rules for these games. And it was the miniatures and painting tips in there that led me to discover Warhammer Fantasy Battle and, of course, Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader. Now, while I still dig those games, and I still own all of them, some multiple editions of, the big thing this led me to is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Now, every roleplayer has their, their own game, their game, right? Their game growing up. And for many, that's Dungeons & Dragons. Well, for me, that was Warhammer. I ran Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay with a home group and then part of a local gaming club for years, all the way through university. And I still love that system and the world it's set in. There's something about being a bunch of bumpkins just trying to survive another day and getting caught up in world-shattering events that always appealed to me. Now, the final game on my list is Cats. For longtime listeners of the show, I've already talked about this game before on What You've Been Playing Wednesday, back when we talked about our favorite games from our childhood. This was a mass-market game published by Chieftain Games here in Canada, where you play cats, each trying to find their favorite objects. Now, the neat bit here is that you don't know what player is playing what cat, nor do you know what objects those cats desire. This game has you moving cats around a clue-like board, only to have your plans disrupted by plays of meow and hiss cards. One of my favorite rules in the game was always, you can't hiss a cat through a wall. I still love cats to this day. I play it with my kids and sometimes bring it out at parties and things like our New Year's events or our Extra Life Charity Gaming Marathon, and I don't expect that to ever change. So that's it for that this week. Those are three games I don't expect I'll ever get rid of. They're going to be in my collection forever and get passed down to my kids. Find lots more gaming content at TabletopBellhop.com and be sure to check out the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, which we record live Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on Twitch with edited episodes showing up on your podcatchers early Tuesday mornings. Also check out the Sunday Brunch with the Bellhop segment we also required record live now on Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern. This is an unscripted show where I chat with my best friend about whatever topics are interest to us at the time. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzno, the Tabletop Bellhop. Good night and game on. I am A.A. Ron Milich. And I'm Royce Calverly. And we are definitely a board game podcast. A podcast definitely about board games, except when they're not. We definitely are. Yes, indeed. And we are back on What You've Been Playing Wednesday. All right, Aaron. This is a special What You've Been Playing. This is a What You've Been Playing for the Ages. This is three games that will never leave your collection. And before we start, I just want to say, hey, Cardboard Conjecture guys. You're stealing our ideas. We do top threes. That's our thing, man. That's our thing. <laughs> you tell them, Royce. You tell the world. <laughs> but we will let you do a top three this All one time. All right, this one time. All right, so what is your number three game that will never leave your collection? Well, it's funny. This is a game that uh, I love and have always loved, and it'll never leave my collection, even though no one will play it with me, but that's Scrabble. Yep. 
Love it, love it, love it. But the good news is I found out a way to play with my wife. She will agree to play with me as long as we play it over the course of a week. <laughs> she could take her time to play her words. Otherwise, uh, again, a favorite. It'll never go anywhere. I'm always hoping I'll find someone in the future that'll play it with me. So that's why it stays in my collection. Plus, it's still the deluxe version with the Lazy Susan. I don't want to lose that. Yeah, and none of those cheesy two-letter two word, two words crap. Yeah, No, we're not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to do that with my wife, so I just don't. Okay. What's your number three? So my three actually are not necessarily my favorite games, although they are actually a couple of my favorite games, but they are games that have a huge amount of uh, basically uh, emotional impact for me. Right. They are games that I just really love for the game because it has a memory attached or whatever it might be. And my number three is Diplomacy. Of course, yeah. So Diplomacy was the first modern board game I ever bought. I know, I know that was my entry gateway game, yeah. uh, but it was the first modern board designer board game I ever bought. It wasn't really modern at the time then either. And when I got my copy, it was this transition point where they were stopped producing it in wood and it started producing it in plastic. And I hated the plastic version. I wanted that wooden copy. So I was looking everywhere, everywhere we went, I looked, I made my parents go in to wait for me while I went into every game store I could find in any city we visited. And I eventually found a copy in a little dusty game store covered in dust in Buffalo, New York. So that's never going anywhere. It's my favorite version of Agricola, or sorry, of Diplomacy of all time. And I just love Diplomacy. It's never going to leave my collection. Nice. Cool. All right. My number two is a game I've mentioned before. For the longest time, it was one of my favorite games. But kind of like you, I don't dislike it because it's a good game. I like it because it, it has a feel-good uh, memory for me. I, I, I just like the look of the game. I like the feel of the game. Uh, it's called Isle of Trains, and I also have a real connection with my father through trains. And so it is a great little game. It's a very big game for a little deck of cards. Uh, you know, if with four players, you're looking at 45 minutes to an hour. Lots going on, multi-use cards, really good game. But just a, it has a really comfortable feeling about it that I like. And so Isle of Trains is one that will never leave my collection. And I'm always worried about losing it because it's such a small little deck of cards. I, I always think I should buy a backup game, a backup version. And maybe one day if I can find one, I will. <laughs> Who's the publisher for that? I can't remember. Me neither. Yeah. If it's, it's Seth Jaffe and he yes. did a lot of work for TMG. If he, if it's published by TMG, you may want to hurry and get a second copy now because TMG has basically shut down their game production. Good to know. I will get on that. Thank you so much. What's your number two? My number two is Rummy Cube. Ah. Uh, this is another classic game. It was, this is a game that my grandparents taught me. Uh, so it was a game that I could play with them. There wasn't a lot of things that my grandparents and I agreed on. They were very traditional, very religious, and I'm not as traditional or religious as they were for sure. And so there were a lot of things that we were a little bit at odds, but games we could always bond over. And Rummy Cube was the big one. That was the real hit for us. I love Rummy Cube. And when they passed, and they both passed at this point, I got their copy of Rummy Cube. Oh, that's cool. That's the copy I own, and I it, it's never going to leave my collection. Yep, and I just bought one of my own on your based on your recommendation. Played it with the wife and my, and my mom, and they both loved it. So, excellent. Still stands up after all this time. It, it's an amazing game. Yep. Yeah. All right, my number one. If you've been listening to us for a while now, you already know what this is going to be. But Azul has become my favorite board game of all time. I love it, love it, love it. I love abstract games. I love the tile. 
uh, feel of it and, and just the whole theme of the game. Um, and now there's all these different uh, other versions. They have the stained glass of Sintra and Summer Pavilion. I have those too. But the original Azul will always be my collection and I absolutely love that game. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too. Excellent. And my number one just happens to be my favorite game of all time too. But it's not because it's my favorite game that it's on the list. So my number one is Agricola by Uwe Rosenberg. Love this game. It's amazing. But the reason this particular copy will never leave my collection. First of all, I've hunted down every expansion and every promo I could get my hands on. I have thousands of cards for it. So it would be really hard to replace. And the new version really doesn't excite me. But more importantly, my wife, Grace, when I went away for a weekend, she, on her own initiative, without me even mentioning it, got out her FEMO set and made realistic resources so realistic wood and reed and uh, clay and all of these things. Hmm. And she did it because she loves this game too. So this is our version. It's a version that I've collected the cards. She's created the resources for it. It's unique in the world. There is no other copy like it. And it it's one of my most valued possessions. I love this game. I will never let it go. That's very cool. Very cool story. So if you enjoyed... Definitely a board game podcast, top three today. The Cardboard Conjecture has stolen right out from under us. Definitely, definitely drop us the line at definitelyboard at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Board Definitely, on Facebook at Definitely Board. And we have a guild on Board Game Geek under Definitely Board Game Podcast. But of course, you can always listen to our show. That's the best way to take in Royce and Aaron and our wonderful voices. You just find us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Spotify and iHeartRadio, everywhere. I mean, it's almost impossible not to be able to find us. So give us a listen and drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Sound good, Royce? Sounds great. Anything else you want to say? No, no, I'm good. Other than cease and desist. <laughs> All right, say goodbye, Royce. Goodbye, Royce. Bye, everybody. Hey, folks. I'm Ryan of Bridge City Board Gamers, and I'm one-third of the weekly podcast Cardboard Conjecture, where we offer our opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. You can find us active on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and now Twitch. Just search up Bridge City Board Gamers. And so we got a very special weekly um, thing going on here at What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And we got an even special week here where we're supposed to be talking about uh, three games that are going to never leave our collections. And now this was actually really, really hard to do, especially with somebody like myself who owns, you know, over 300 games there are a lot of games that are going to stay in my collection, but I'm trying to narrow it down to, um, let's just say, three that I really, really want to talk about. And One that I'm really going to talk about is uh, the game Five Tribes. Five Tribes is never, ever leaving our collection. Um, designed by uh, Bruno Cathala, published by Days of Wonder. It is a fantastic game that uh, plays very lovely at all the player counts, especially the two-player player count. My, my wife and I really, really enjoyed the two-player experience, um, being able to um, outbid the other person to maybe possibly set yourself up for double moves and just the tense back and forth. Um, we own all the expansions. It actually, just this past uh, past week, we actually got in a, a, I'll call it a mega game, of five tribes where we played with all the expansions and 
wow, it was it was glorious. We absolutely adore and love Five Tribes and everything that that they've done with that game. It's it's very it's very beautifully done. Um, it was one of our first games that we ever um, uh, came together as a couple to actually play, sit down, learn, uh, and enjoy it. It's one of our most played games in our collection. So definitely Five Tribes, and it's also my number three. Um, game of all time uh, from my top 50 list so um, well I guess on that note too I guess uh, another game that is never going to leave my collection is the absolutely beautiful um, stunning um, elegant uh, I can't go an episode of Cardboard Conjecture without ever mentioning Targi the what I always say is the greatest two-player game of all time it, it's very tense, back and forth, tactical. It's everything we want. It, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's, it's Even though it's kind of like the same game, it's not the same game every time because of the way that the, um, the, the tribe cards come out and the way the good cards come out. And mm, we just absolutely adore it. Um, we've been exploring with the expansion um, and what it has to offer, but... Oh my gosh, Targi is never ever going to leave our collection. Um, like I said, it's I think it's the greatest two-player game of all time, and yeah, it's 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 never it's never going to go away. It can't it can't go away. And now, what's the last one that I talk about? Uh, there's there's so many of them. Like I could talk about my um, absolutely 100% blinged out copy of Scythe. I'm not going to talk about that one. That one's never going to leave. Um, there is, uh, my Anachrony Infinity Box. That one's never, ever gonna, well, I, I need to actually get it back from board's, uh, board on the air for one thing, but, uh, oh, but I think the last one that I'm going to talk about is going to be Arkham Horror, the card game. Um, absolutely 100% enjoy what this game, um, brings to the table. Um, every single, every single cycle that they come up with is always something new. It's something fresh. Um, yet it's always familiar like you know like once you play Arkham Horror the card game you're playing Arkham Horror the card game but it's always those new um, the scenario packs that come out and the way they, they keep the game feeling fresh overall um, it's hard it's difficult I have to do custom deck building which I really really love to do in this game it's actually one of the only game uh, one of the only card games that I'm actually I would consider maybe decent at doing the deck construction beforehand and I still get absolutely annihilated by some of the scenarios, which is actually really, really cool because it always keeps me coming back um, to this game. And it's probably one of my most uh, played games in my collection just because of the sheer number of campaigns that I've played through. Um, yeah, Arkham Horror and all of the stuff. I think I almost I think I have everything. I, I'll probably be missing some promos here and there. But I legitimately own all of the complete cycles up until the last one, the Insmith Conspiracy, um, so far. So uh, I got a schwack load of cards um, stored away in the in the nice. I've bought the nice return two boxes to kind of organize the scenarios and stuff like that. But Arkham Horror, the card game, that one's never going to leave my collection. I I, I love it to bits. Um, but yeah, so I guess uh, I guess I talked about three. I guess those are the three. Oh, wait, I guess those were the my top three games of all time uh, based off our list that we released um, back in episodes 49 and 50 of Cardboard Conjecture. Um, so I guess if you want to think about if you want to figure out 50 other games that I am never going to get rid of, you can go back and listen to those uh, lists, I guess. Um, yeah, so 
I guess I've been Ryan of the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. Um, yeah, make sure you check out all our social media. We're active on uh, Twitter, on Instagram, YouTube. Um, every Wednesday, like today, you can catch Rob from the Meeple Dungeon and I. We're going to be taking on each other in our Best of Seven series of Ashes Reborn, which is another really fantastic uh, customizable card game that you definitely should check us out on, on Twitch and on YouTube, Bridge, Bridge City Board Gamers. And, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll talk to you guys next time I decide to, it's been a while since I've actually recorded an episode. So, uh, hopefully I can find some time to make this a regular thing once again. All right, folks, you sell, you have yourselves a great week and enjoy the content. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dyson Dragons, and on Twitter at Dyson Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And this is a special episode of What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. We are all talking about the top three, well, I don't think we're going to list them as the top three, but uh, our three favorite games, the ones that will never leave our collection, no matter what happens, rain or shine, maybe even coming with us in the coffin or being burned with us uh, if we decide to be cremated, they're sticking with us for a long time. Way to go creepy. (laughs) Hey, gamers like to take our stuff with us if we can. I mean, that's I guess that's the only way you can do it. (laughs) Okay, then. On that note... Uh, I would say when, when Jason asked me and he says, uh, and said what the topic was, I said, definitely Descent. Yeah. And that, that really goes for Descent and Imperial Assault. Uh, for those that are fans of both of those games, they're essentially the, the same game. Uh, we even have the Red Jack, uh, Automated Imperial and the Automated Overlord. Don't need to get those Overlord card printed uh, out. So we can even play all of the campaign boxes, at least for Descent as cooperative games. You also have the app, which whether it survives or not, there has been some fan uh, iterations of it, so you should still be able to play. It is also on Steam, which means there's a fairly good chance that it will continue on for quite a while, but we do have the cooperative adventures, and it can be played one versus many. This has just been one of our favorite games. It's actually a large part of the reason why we started the channel. So. You know, that series of games, we're just going to keep it with us for a long time. Can't get rid of it. And it's funny because, you know, as we were putting this list and we're talking about these two, uh, actually, we've started playing Descent again. And um, it's funny because I really think I prefer Lord of the Rings. Um, But as Jason pointed out, we don't know if that app's going to survive and it's purely app driven. So it's probably the reason why... That one's not on our list. I think it would get, Jason says we're going to cheat on this one and we're going to give it an honorable mention. Um, honestly, I, I I do think having played Descent again, I, I prefer uh, the Lord of the Rings game when we've had more plays of it. That being said, like you pointed out, you know, we can play Descent without the app. Exactly. And then... Number, well, number two, but uh, the second one we're talking about, but maybe potentially our number two as well, we have Cthulhu Death Made Die. Now, this game, I had buyer's remorse. I was like, why did I buy this stupid Kickstarter? Why did I spend so much money? It's a Cthulhu game. It's cooperative, but it's Cthulhu. I already have a bunch of Arkham Horror stuff. Julie is never going to like it. 
And boy, oh boy, would I be very sad if that game was not in our collection right now because it's been a while since we played it, but we have had so much fun with Death May Die. Yeah, surprisingly, I didn't think I would enjoy playing the monsters like that, but it's... Uh, it, well, it's, the crazy investigators, you mean? Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Uh, I mean, and it's been fun watching people discover it. I mean, we haven't... It's been fun. It's been uh, 17, 18 months since we've been able to watch people discover it. But yes. last time we had a game night and we took it out, it was a lot of fun to have people really discover it and, and enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, people, there's lots of emergent storytelling that happens uh, in the game. And that's one of the things that uh, I love the most about it. I mean, our first win, my character led all the monsters away and blew myself up. Self-sacrifice is part of the game. We've had all of the investigators go insane and defeat Cthulhu literally saving the world on the last roll or even sacrificing themselves to save the world. So in that respect, it's got the Cthulhu theme. It's a lot of fun. And Julie loves the dice. The fancy dice that I bought for myself are now hers. Of course. That's how it works. I don't understand this. I buy them the dice. She takes the dice. And I mean, we you've probably heard us talk for the number, for the third one on the list. You've heard us talk about it on what you've been playing Wednesdays. Uh, it was also on. one of the things we talked about on the last game standing by Friday Night Game. So if you haven't heard that series, you should definitely check it out. So as Julie said, Aeon's End. Uh, we talked specifically about Aeon's End Outcast, but we have everything Aeon's End. We've played every single Aeon's End game. We've beaten most of the campaigns. We haven't done the uh, expansion campaigns for some of the latest ones. But all the core boxes have been defeated and gotta say... This game has just been so much fun to play. It was also our first legacy game. I really wasn't sure how that was going to go over with Julie. <laughs> you can't see because this is not, I'm, I'm used to us filming video. I just made a face to say, yeah, I, I was, I didn't love the idea. I said, we got to do what with the cards? But uh, yeah, we've, I really came to, to appreciate that game. I, I really enjoy playing it. It definitely, uh, would not leave the collection and and as jason said i think we would have loved to do a top 10 of this um there's a lot of games that we like to to bring back uh to the table but those three uh, are are definitely at the top of the list i'd say in terms of what we're getting from the experience for descent we just have an insane amount of content because we have all of it same thing with imperial assault imperial assault we forgot to mention you even have the versus mode so lots of different ways that you can play that in terms of aeon zen we just have so many different nemesis to play you can play two player four player you can scale the difficulty and then the new campaigns it just has a lot to dive into and to enjoy. And Cthulhu Death May Die with its emergent storytelling, no matter which mission you're playing, the story's gonna be different. And just those insanities that you give your investigators that are random really changes the game up every time. We struggled to beat the first mission a few times. We came close. And I think that was when I really knew we had a, a great game on our hands, was everyone was enjoying our plays even when we lost. And the first thing everyone said was, we're playing again. There wasn't a question about it. And a good buddy of ours went out and bought the game right after playing it with us. He's like, I need the Kickstarter. So it goes to show you that, uh, yeah, we've had a lot of fun with all the games. And I think that's it uh, from us. I don't have anything more to add to you, Julie. No, I don't. So that that is it for what you've been playing Wednesdays. Again, it's been a pleasure being on. Thanks for having us. And don't forget to keep playing games. games. Bye.
Shay. And I'm David. And we are Bored on the Air, and you are listening to What You Been Playing, a weekly podcast uh, filled with Canadian creators talk about board games that we've been playing. Yes, it's a special theme week. Top three games that will never leave your collection. Yes, so now we have to somehow talk about uh, six games in six minutes. Yes. Which we are not known for uh, being quick about our descriptions, so this should be good. This should be the challenge of challenges. (laughs) Okay, number three? Sure. Okay, which which one is the least of your top three that are not going to leave your collection? Uh, It's number three only because I don't own the game. Okay. But it would never leave my collection if I owned it. Okay. And that is Quacks. Uh, Quacks of Quedlinburg. So I say I don't own this game because I don't, it's your game. Yeah. I don't own it. Eventually I hope to move out and I cannot take it with me, but I love it. And yeah. it's a fantastic game. We play it all the time and it's not one I would ever even dream of selling. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. My number three is Raiders of the North Sea. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a worker placement game by Shem Phillips, who is one of my top two favorite designers of all time. And no matter how many times I pull this out, I have a good time. I've upgraded some bits in it. I have the collector's box. I have the mat. Uh, so this one will never be leaving my collection because it's just so much fun. And, and I like it. I like the weight of it that I can teach a lot of different people with all the expansions and it goes over well. Absolutely. I love this game too. So definitely okay. can't sell it. Number two. Number two. Number two for me is Champions of Midgard. This one I do own. It is my my game. Yep. So I can take it with me. And also I've spent a lot of money on upgrading the parts in it. Yes. So it can't leave because I've spent, I've invested in this game. Um, but fantastic uh, worker placement style game with dice rolling and just all over the place i love it i love it so much um and definitely like it's a big game so i can't play it with everybody it's not a, a humongous yeah, but uh, it's not complicated no it's just big yeah but fantastic game and definitely would never dream of selling it okay my number two is a little known game called quacks of quillingberg <laughs> uh for for the same reasons it, it's it's such a fun game I have yet to have it not go over well with who I've introduced it to. And, and everybody needs a game like that in your collection where you can bring it out no matter whoever comes over. Yeah. And, you know, I've upgraded the bits. I have all the expansions. I haven't tried the newest one yet. I'm hoping it adds even more, maybe maybe even more gamer to it. Uh, and I love the fact that, you know, while not a lot of us are gamblers, this brings out the gambling in us. Yeah, it's just the right amount of gambling for me. It, it really is. Okay, that's two. We are at three minutes and 20 seconds. We've done well. Okay, number one, Shay. Number one. Uh, Tell me about... Everdell. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that would yeah, be number one. Yeah, you got to figure that would be there. Uh, Everdell, fantastic. Worker placement game again, honestly. Like, I just... If you know me, I'm not a worker placement she person, but it's so good. She loves worker placement. Uh, but Everdell, super cute game. Um, the mechanics just work so well where you're building the tableau and you're putting your workers out and the way that you move to the new season and get more workers, but it never really stops the game. Like, you're never what? waiting. No, Nobody has a downtime. It's, it's a worker yeah. placement game that doesn't... It sort of has rounds, but doesn't. Yeah. 
right? So you're never left the rounds, until the very, very, very end. That's true. And really, even then, it's only a couple of rounds. Yeah, usually everybody ends around turns. the same time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would never sell this one. I also own it. I've just backed the big box and the other two expansions that are coming out. Um, so yeah. I'll, it's, I'll, it's another one you've upgraded everything you possibly can for. Well, no, because I haven't been able to find the rest of the animals. Well, you can't find all the animals. But I've been told possibly the Kickstarter that's still, well, the Pledge Manager is still open. I might be able to order them there, so I'm, I need to go look. But oh, okay. yes, it is one that I've spent money on, but I also just love this game. And I, I definitely think it'll be one I'll continue to play for years and years and years and years. Yeah, it's it's one that doesn't get to the table as frequently as some. Yeah. But every time it comes out, it, it works really it, well. Right? And I love that the rule book is fabulous. Oh, uh, yeah. It's one of those ones that you can quickly skim through and you're right back to the game if, if you've forgotten anything that's the thing we went through it the last time we played it because we yeah. had forgotten and it was easy to pick it up for sure okay my number one is by my other favorite designer mm -hmm. uh stefan feld mm -hmm. and it's castles of burgundy yeah i figured that was on my list too uh <laughs> the main reason it works at two it works at three it works at four so it's something we can play as a family and we play as a family a lot and it's something when me and your mom are at the lake we played probably 15 or 20 games of it over a couple of days that we were at the lake by ourselves. Yep. And I love the decisions. I, I love the mitigation of the dice rolling. I, I, I love that I never remember what the buildings do, but have such a good time playing it because the, the player aids are so well done. Yeah. Uh, we do have the anniversary edition, which some people I know don't like the graphic design, but I think the extra color and the way it's laid out is better than the original. And that's why Castle of Burgundy will never leave my collection. I agree. I very much agree. Okay. Just over six minutes. I'm David. And I'm Shay. And we are Board on the Air, a weekly podcast slash radio show in Saskatoon. You can find us on CFCR at six o'clock every Thursday night and all of your favorite podcasting sites. Have a good night. You too. It's Rob and Anne-Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And this week we have kind of a special podcast where we are going to talk about the three games that we do not want to have leave our collections ever. 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 So, uh, although we do have a bit of crossover in our, you know, personally, we thought it'd be more interesting if we each had our own three. So... Anna-Marie, take it away. What would be your number three game that's never leaving your collection? My number three game is designed by, and I apologize in advance for all of these names if I mess up any of them, uh, by Galen Siskel and Brent Dickman. Artwork by Vincent Dutrait. Published by Elf Creek Games. And that would be Atlantis Rising. Yes, nice pick. That game has i just love the theme of that game it the theme oozes out of their board the way they've got the board set up it's so pretty you're sinking yeah. it's an incredible co-op experience they have so many different um difficulty levels it's fantastic that is my number three never leaving my collection and i would add might be one of the most gorgeous games oh, ever created so pretty 
Um, yeah, but great pick. What's so, your number three, Rob? My number three is uh, designed by Michael Boggs, Nate French, and Caleb Grace, published by Fantasy Flight Games, the one and only Marvel Champions, the card game. Um, Very yeah, nice game. I don't know. I mean, we've talked a lot about Marvel Champions on this <laughs> podcast, and a lot of other people have talked about Marvel Champions, so there's not a lot to say other than it's a, an amazing co-op game, one of the greatest experiences out there for a card game. Uh, it's ever-changing, ever-building uh, and getting bigger and crazier, and we just love it. We play nothing but this game at times. Like, we'll go through nights of playing hours of Marvel Champions. And, uh, yeah, no. It's an incre- incredible game. Good so pick. Good pick. Uh, that's never leaving. So what would be your number two, Anna-Marie? My number two that will never be leaving uh, my collection um, is designed by Jamie Stegmeier, Alan Stone, and Morde Monrad Petersay. Artwork by Beth Sobel, and published by Stonemeyer Games. And that would be Viticulture. So Viticulture is never leaving because it is so much fun to play and creates such a good atmosphere. We play this game with Italian music in the background, <laughs> yep. with a, bo- a glass of wine. I was going to say glass bottle. It's a bottle of wine. Yep. We've had um, friends over, and we play this, and we get like a charcuterie board with cheeses out yep. and crackers, and it's just it it oozes its theme as well. Like yep. it's just so much fun um, bringing all of that into it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Viticulture is in my top ten games of all time. Absolutely so love it. Love it. Um, yeah, that's going nowhere. Um, my number two that is never leaving the collection is designed by Eric Lang from Simon Games, and this one is the one and only Blood Rage. This game is my absolute favorite game when it comes to dudes on a map. Um, although it's you know not a ton of fighting, it's more area control and card drafting. Two of my favorite things also in the world: it's Vikings and yeah, incredible Vikings, right? Valhalla, Dying for Glory, the whole bit. It's it's an incredible game, and that is my that was basically probably my first dudes on a map game, I think, because you know we got into that kind of late, or one of them anyway. But just the one that blew me the way the most, and that one's going nowhere. Painted all the miniatures with so, every so everything good. for the game. Yeah, it's incredible. That's going absolutely number or nowhere. <laughs> Anne-Marie, what is your number one game not leaving? My number one game, never leaving this collection. Um, it is designed by Matt Leacock. Illustrations are by Tyler Edlin and CB Kanga. And it is published by GameRight. And that would be Forbidden Desert. Yes. And now that game is amazing. It's all around a great game. It's for all ages. Like, this, it just... All ages like it. My kids like it. Friends like it. Everybody. It's for all gamer types. Like new, yep. new to games. Um, One of the best welcoming games out there. Yeah, and and then but then people who are seasoned gamers love it as well. It's just yep. it's oh, so yeah. fun and it's not a guaranteed win. Like we lose a ton and it's yeah it's fantastic. It's I love incredible. It. I never get Forbidden sick of Desert it. is I think one of the most highly underrated games ever made. It is I'm certain the number one game we've played in our collection. Oh, absolutely. It's worn out, like, not worn out, but the edges are all rough. Everything it's is very well loved. scratched <laughs> and dinged and dented, and it's, oh, yeah, we played this game more than any other game we've played in our collection for good reason. Yeah. It's an incredible co-op game, and, uh, yeah, that yeah. game, great pick. It's going nowhere. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> I think um, so too. <laughs> my number one game that is going nowhere from this collection is designed by Tuko Takukalio, published by La Topolit. I forget how you pronounce <laughs> this. It's all Finnish. Um, and that would be Eclipse, New Dawn for the Galaxy. So this game... Great game. Yeah. This game is the game that brought me back into the world of board games. Same with you. Because yes. um, we were over in Finland when we first discovered this game in a, in a little board game shop there. And the guy was telling us all about it and how it was a Finnish designer and a Finnish publisher. And how is this this crazy, cool new space opera? And we took a copy of it home with us. And, oh, it's just, this game never disappoints. It's some of the biggest, most outrageous stand-up-and-cheer <laughs> or stand-up-and-scream because you, you you lost a battle and the dice rolling is just, oh, it's incredible. Very it's, good it's, game. Uh, yeah, this game is the single uh, most... Never leaving your collection. <laughs> yeah, like, single highest game on my list that I would, I would never leave without. Uh, this is my... Uh, Desert Island Desert pick. Island game. Yeah. <laughs> this game would come with me, and I would love every minute of playing it. So, yeah, just to uh, reiterate here, I've got Marvel Champions, Blood Rage, and Eclipse. And I've got Atlantis Rising, Viticulture, and Forbidden Desert. Yes. Six fantastic picks. Yes. Um, but, yeah, we got to run, and we just want to plug in here that we are going to be starting our own podcast here in this week. And it's going to be probably publishing every Tuesday night, I'm thinking, at this point. But we're not sure on that uh, at this point. But, uh, yeah, you can watch for that on all of the places you get your podcasts. And, yeah, we got to run, though. So we'll see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hey there, welcome to What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. I'm Chad, one of the three hosts of Of Dice and Men, the board game podcast where we talk about board games, the people who play them, and the culture surrounding the hobby. Unfortunately, it's been a while since I've been able to put something together for WPBW, but it's been a pretty dry summer, and not just because of the prairie weather. Between summer activities, renovations, and just being busy, I haven't really got a lot of games to the table. Luckily this week, we've got a special feature where we're talking about games from our collection that we'd never get rid of, and I certainly have a few of those. Now, there's quite a few games I consider special in my collection. A few rare gems, a few games where I help playtest and have my name in the book, Humblebrig, and a few games that are just too darn expensive to part with. But these next three games are games that I've just enjoyed way too much to even consider getting rid of, and anytime there's a chance to play, I'll gladly take it. Everyone's got their own tastes when it comes to hobbies like board gaming, and these games hit the perfect sweet spot for me. There's lots of theme, a few surprises, and the perfect mechanical twist to provide a memorable gaming experience. Let's start off with my favorite solo game of all time, Seventh Continent. Seventh Continent is an exploration game where you play as one or more explorers haunted by a past visit. The particular details of the curse you've received vary on each play as you can choose from one of the dozen or so options giving you a specific goal. From there, you embody one of the characters in the game with their own unique set of skills mixed into a shared action deck and set off. The map you explore in Seventh Continent is generally the same each time you play, but what gives this game legendary replayability is a mixture of events that you'll encounter with each attempt. Unlike other card-based maps you've seen in Destinies or Tainted Grail, 
Seventh Continent marks each way forward with an area-specific event drawn from a shuffled deck. One time you may push forward into a complex trap that you have to solve through a gear puzzle, another time you might be faced with a predator, or another the option to shrug off a bug bite. The narrative flavor the events add to the game remind me quite a bit of the events in Robinson Crusoe published by Portal Games, but with even more variety, and they add the perfect touch of theme to an excellent game. As you explore, you're asked to perform actions, and each action has a simple push-your-luck mechanic to resolve. No dice rolling here, instead you choose to draw a certain number of cards from your action deck to get the required number of successes. The catch, of course, is that your action deck is also your stamina, so while you can make big draws to improve your chance of success, it comes at a big cost. Some actions will undoubtedly take a lot of stamina, like fighting off a bear, and are marked with a minimum card draw to ensure that you feel the pain of the situation not only thematically, but mechanically as well. Of course, if you were fighting off a bear, having a weapon on hand would certainly help, and that's where Seventh Continent's crafting system comes into play. Using resources scavenged from the island, you can make any number of helpful items, even combining them where it makes sense, like a walking stick with a spear tip, which help you manage your stamina, success rate, and card draw. If you have a broken arm, which is one of the many conditions you can get in the game, you can craft a splint. If you need to hunt some food, you can make a deadfall trap. The mechanical and thematic tie-in as you play the game is wonderful, and definitely one of the reasons this game is a personal favorite. I'm anxiously awaiting Sirius Pulp's next game, Seventh Citadel, which pitches itself as Seventh Continent with fantasy RPG elements, and hopefully that'll be released sometime next year. Game number two on my list is a bit of a beast, both in price and box size, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Kingdom Death Monster. My first exposure to KDM was actually during their first Kickstarter. I took one look at the $100 USD price tag and laughed my way to the next project. I know, $100 is barely the average Kickstarter game price nowadays, but this was back in 2013. In any case, by the time the game shipped, which was three years late if I recall correctly, and Kingdom Death 1.5 was announced, I was ready to hit refresh until the Black Friday Kickstarter went live and I gladly grabbed a half-price $200 spot. Kingdom Death Monster is a lot. The main premise of KDM is that you awake as a group of survivors in a desolate land where the ground is made of skulls and there's nothing other than the light of your lantern, and then a lion tries to eat you. From the first battle, KDM is dripping with theme and really creates a highly immersive world where you manage a colony of survivors doing their best to thrive in the haunted land they find themselves in. Once past the initial lion combat, assuming you survive, you find yourself alternating between colony management, hunting, and battle phases, with various events and activities sprinkled in between. Mechanically, Kingdom Death Monster is wonderful, with some of the best cooperative combat I've seen in a game with the exception of Gloomhaven. Each monster you face in the game behaves different with the randomness of its AI deck built upon a beast difficulty level framework. A level 1 white line will behave in a similar though not identical manner between each combat, but a level 2 line is an entirely different battle. There's still a lot of die rolling on each side of the table, but each die cast promises an interesting result similar in a lot of ways to an RPG. Attacking a monster generally lands a blow on a specific body part which may have consequences for the rest of the fight. If you manage to break the lion's leg, their movement will be reduced. Just like if the lion bats at your head, you've got a pretty good chance of losing it. While it's true you spend most of your time in Kingdom Death Monster in combat, the hunt and settlement phases come with their own unique challenges and surprises. There's time story events, random settlement events, a tech tree, population management, crafting, 
gear management, and such a large library of things you can draw from that it's hard to imagine a campaign of KDM going the same way twice. That said, Kingdom Death Monster is not exactly for everyone. The theme is quite dark, characters die gruesome deaths all the time, the artwork leans towards the anime fanservice side, it's ridiculously expensive, although I wouldn't say a bad value. You have to assemble every model you play with. One of the monsters had 20 or more hands I had to glue on individually. And a number of other drawbacks makes it a hard game for me to recommend to just anyone. But it is one of the most unique experiences I've had in my board gaming career. And if any of my friends wanted to start up another 30 plus hour campaign, I would not hesitate. Kingdom Death Monster is still my favorite cooperative campaign experience in my collection. So much that I've played through the campaign, not to completion, to an early death, on five separate occasions, way more than any other campaign experience in my library. Finally, I'll save the best for last. Fans of our show will know my number one game of all time is Battlestar Galactica, the hidden traitor epic from Fantasy Flight Games. BSG has players playing characters from the beloved TV show, the newer one from the 2000s, not the 1970s one, doing their best to keep their Battlestar from falling apart while being assaulted by numerous Cylon ships. And, just like the show, there's one or more players who are secretly Cylons themselves, infiltrating from within and doing as much damage as they can before they're discovered. On a player's turn, you can perform a move, an action, and then you reveal a Crisis card. The Crisis is a shared event that all players can contribute to, which they do by playing one or more skill cards to a face-down pile. A given Crisis usually indicates a few different skills that may help. A Water Crisis may favor engineering and politics as an example. Once all players have contributed, the pile is shuffled and then revealed. Meeting the minimum number of effort will avert the crisis, but falling short generally depletes one of four resources needed to keep the battle star and the humans aboard alive. If the Cylons can manage to sabotage resources from within or even as a revealed Cylon, they'll win the game. That's Battlestar Galactica in a nutshell, but there's just so much more going on in the game, particularly if you add any of the three expansions that have been released for it. There's NPC Cylon ships constantly attacking and chasing you, an elected president that gets extra powers, civilian ships to manage, political decisions to be made, player allegiances to figure out. It just never ends. Despite it being a longer game, I don't think there's ever a dull moment in BSG, which speaks to its wonderful design. In addition to the clever crisis mechanic, Battlestar Galactica has one of the most simple yet genius designs in a hidden trader game that I've seen to date, The Crossroad. At about the halfway mark, you'll receive an additional loyalty card, meaning you might switch teams mid-game. All of a sudden, players may not necessarily want the Battlestar to do all that well at the beginning, given the off chance that they'll be tasked with destroying it in an hour. Or, perhaps no one is even a Cylon in the first half of the game. This clever little twist to the game can only be executed with the length that BSG has, and it's done quite well. Hidden Trader games aren't new in the board game space, dating all the way back to Mafia in the 80s, but Battlestar Galactica was my first introduction to the mechanic. Since then I've fallen in love with a number of great Hidden Trader games, but BSG is the only three or more hour epic that really does it for me. It is unfortunately out of print, but Fantasy Flight Games has recently announced Unfathomable, which is an Arkham Horror twist on much of the same mechanics that makes BSG special. I don't think I'm going to switch over personally, as I prefer the sci-fi theme and the amount of content available between all that's been released so far, but it may open the market up to more used copies or lower the high prices that we've seen over the years. Well, that's my top three. Seventh Continent, Kingdom Death Monster, and Battlestar Galactica. 
If that's not a sure sign of how thematic a gamer I am, I'm not sure what is. If you'd like to hear us talk about more great thematic games, or just listen to me accuse Adam and Ryan of being Cylons, feel free to check out Of Dice and Men on your favorite podcatcher. We're on a bit of a summer hiatus at the moment, but we've got years of back catalog you can catch up with. Have a great week! Hey everybody, my name is Chris Morris from Mozart Games, and I'm absolutely thrilled that Cardboard Conjecture have asked me to join the fun of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. You can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo, that's Spider with a Y, if you like what you hear and want to give me a follow for some board game thoughts, a bit of hockey talk, and mostly just me complaining about random things. This week I'm talking about three games that will never leave my collection, which is a tough category for me to discuss because I've been known within my group for moving on from games fairly quickly, making trades, and selling others to make room for new ones. However, there are three games that I'm pretty sure I can safely say will never, ever leave my collection, all for their own reasons. The first game that falls into this category is Cthulhu Wars by Sandy Peterson and Peterson Games. Cthulhu Wars is an area control game with gigantic miniatures, and the game is based on the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. It's epic in scale, but actually plays in a very short time frame. Most games can be completed in about an hour, which for this style of game is pretty incredible. Each player controls a faction in the game, bent on controlling the world. Of course, Cthulhu's here, along with their good buddies the Black Goat, Narothrotep, and the Yellow Sign. Every faction has six unique objectives that they need to accomplish before they can win the game, and every time that they finish one of these objectives, they unlock a spellbook which gives them access to more abilities within the game. Also, every faction has their own Great Old One that they can summon, along with three monsters, and every one of these is unique to them, and many of the spellbooks that the players collect will boost these monsters in some way. Each faction plays in their own way, allowing players lots of strategy to win the game. However, the game shines with various expansions added in that provide more factions, neutral monsters, or Great Old Ones that players can recruit, and a variety of maps to keep things fresh. It's this abundance of expansions that makes the game so wonderful to me, as no two games will ever really play the same, depending on what's included. A game with Windwalker included is going to be very different than Sleeper, as they both alter how other players need to react to them. Also, playing with some of the neutral expansions can boost various factions' abilities, or make up for certain shortcomings, depending on what is added and who recruits them. I absolutely love this game, but part of that love comes from the financial investment that I have in it. The core game on its own is about $250, not to mention that the expansions are all about $30 to $80 a piece. I've purchased a lot of expansions and promos, but I don't have close to everything that's been released for it, although I'm more than happy with what I have at this point. There is maybe one expansion that I still want, but it's merely cosmetic, and unless I can find it for an amazing deal, it will not be added to my collection anytime soon. This game has a ton of bling but there is also huge substance included in this game, which means that I don't think it will ever leave my collection. I would much rather play Cthulhu Wars than games like Blood Rage, Root, or Inish. I think the only way I would consider moving this is if a more portable version came available that I could bring to game nights that included all the material that I have, as, as honestly, the only way that this game makes it to game nights is if it's at my house at this point. I also have no affinity for Cthulhu Mythos, and have only read a handful of the books by Lovecraft and was never really drawn into that world, but this game excels even without that connection. The next game that I want to talk about is Innovation by Carl Chuddock and Esmati Games. This is a card game where players are developing technology from the Stone Age to the Space Age. It's basically Tech Tree, the card game, 
with a very open flow to it. Players add cards to an ever-changing tableau in front of them, and then use those cards to activate some incredible powers. Opponents can benefit from some of your cards, depending on the number of icons visible on their tableau when cards are activated. There are six different icons printed on the cards, and the frequency of those icons changes as the game progresses. Castles are important in the first few eras, but later on in the game, they're pretty much useless, and things like factories or ideas become more crucial in order to activate cards. All the techs have abilities that feel like their corresponding card. The bicycle, for example, allows players to actually cycle their cards in their scoring areas and their hand, while nuclear fission can destroy everything on the board, sending everyone back to the Stone Age if players aren't careful. There's also several expansions that add more to the game with new tech, prominent people from history, or cities that don't actually provide abilities themselves, but help boost other cards that you have by providing more of the icons. Older tech gets covered up by newer tech of the same color, but they're still important as one part of the game allows players to splay their cards so that those underneath your current tech still provide their symbols to boost all of your other cards. Innovation can be a little bit chaotic at times, but I do find it plays best with two or three players. Even with the chaos, a more experienced player is going to do better as they're able to plan for potential combos. There's also a ton of take that to this game so players need to be aware of that going in. There is the potential for a runaway leader to develop, depending on card draws, but the game does play quick enough that that really doesn't bother me. This is also a game where I actually enjoy being the player behind and trying to find clever ways to mess with the leader and pull off a come-from-behind victory. I think what I really like about this game is that a player could have a really great engine that allows them to get newer and newer technologies, but they don't actually have a way to collect scoring cards which are needed to get achievements to win the game. While someone else may be a few ages back, but they've managed to get several achievements, getting them closer to victory. Once a player does get an achievement, there is little their opponent can do to take that away from them. Which means that even though things can get chaotic, there is actually some stability when it comes to getting to the end of the game. I have an original copy from 2010, and some of the newer expansions don't really match the game as well with some newer graphics. So the only way that I could see myself getting rid of this is if I were to buy one of the newer editions of the game, but it's so inexpensive that I could just as easily see myself getting a second copy at this point. The final game in my collection that will never leave is Star Wars Rebellion from Cory Kanitsa and Fantasy Flight Games. Now, I grew up totally obsessed with Star Wars, an obsession that wasn't even diminished when the prequels came out. One of my earliest childhood memories is walking into the theater with my dad to go see Empire Strikes Back when it came out. So yeah, I love Star Wars, and this game is quite literally Star Wars in a box. It's a two-player game that can take a few hours to play. One side is the Empire with a massive fleet of starships and ground forces trying to find the one sole planet in the galaxy that the hidden rebel base is on. The rebels, meanwhile, are completely outgunned and will rarely win many battles, so they must use their guile and deception to slow the Empire down. Both sides have missions that they will draw throughout the game, allowing them to mess with their opponents in various ways, with the rebels' missions focused on trying to run out a game timer and complete various objectives that reduces the amount of time that the Empire has to find them. If the Rebels can hold out long enough, they eventually win the game, but if the Empire can find and destroy the Rebel base before the clock runs out, then they win. Mission cards and characters pull from the original trilogy movies, and the expansion adds in aspects from Rogue One as well. It truly is a sandbox game, as players are allowed to do so much within it. Do you want to train Han Solo to become a Jedi? Go for it! Do you want to put a bounty on Admiral Akbar's head, forcing the rebel player to constantly watch what they do with that character? Yep, you can do that too. 
but be warned. It's a trap! As the Imperial player, you are slowly, methodically eliminating areas of the galaxy that the Rebels can be hiding in, all the while building a larger and larger machine that can demolish anything in its path. In fact, you can build up to two Death Stars in the game and wreak complete havoc on the galaxy. As the Rebel player, you are nervous all game long as you could be only a turn or two away from having your base found. But if you react quick enough, there is a possibility that you can move your base before being discovered. It's the ultimate game of cat and mouse, and the game usually comes down to a single round that could have swung the victory towards the other player. I've had so many fantastic gaming memories from this game, and most of those have been with my brother, as we've played this game over Skype for the last few years. I'm sure this is my most played game in my collection, and the majority of those plays is with somebody 400 kilometers away, but we've been able to play face-to-face -face and share our love of this universe with each other over the last few years. For that reason alone, Star Wars Rebellion will never, ever leave my collection, as I never want to lose that connection with the best friend that I've had for 45 years. We may not always agree on who the greatest bounty hunter in the galaxy is, <coughs> Bosk, <coughs> but we will always have an amazing time playing this game, and I never want to lose that connection. So that's the three games that will never leave my collection. I'm Chris Morris. If you liked what you heard from me and want to hear or see more, I can be found on Twitter as Spidermo. Thanks for listening, and may all your dice rolls be critical successes. Hi, this is Andrew Buckle of SupportingGame.com, and this week I'm here to talk about free games that will never leave my collection. I thought an interesting way to go with this segment this week would be about three of my favorite war games. Those are Liberty or Death, For the People, and Rebel Raiders on the High Seas. Liberty or Death was first published in 2016, and it was the fifth volume in GMT's Coin Games series. It's designed by Harold Buchanan, and a key art for both the map and the card backs is by Terry Leeds. The map art here is really beautiful and is some of the best I've seen in any game, war game or not. Other notable credits here include Roger B. McGowan for art direction and for the cover art, and Charlie Kipler for the card art. And on the design front, Volker Runke is credited as a series designer, while Mike Berticelli is credited as a series developer, and Jordan Kaver is credited as a contributing developer. There were several other important people involved with this game too, including Orjan Ariander on the solitaire system design and Kai Jensen on the proofreading. And that's a common theme in a lot of GMT games and coin games in particular, is that these are the results of a lot of people putting their talents together. I think Liberty or Death is really cool, and I think it's my favorite coin game. It's uh, the coin series, for those who don't know, is a counterinsurgency series, and it started off with Andy and Abyss, but has since covered a whole lot of counterinsurgency te topics from modern to ancient. Liberty or Death is a really interesting look at this, and it's an unconventional tale of the American Revolution where it's not just a fight between the British and the Patriots, but also the natives, who are sometimes allied with the British, and but also don't always work in entire concert with them, and the French, who are sometimes allied with the Patriots, but don't always do exactly what they want. 
So it's a really interesting multifactional look at that conflict and at the various dimensions and how those impacted what happened. A cool thing with Liberty or Death is that it's really great as a four-player game, as most of these coin series games that go up to four are, but it also works really well as a two-person game with one controlling each side of the conflict, whether that be British and natives or the French and the Patriots. In a four-player game, there's definitely some times where the alliances don't work perfectly, and that's harder to replicate in the two-player game, but the close nature of these alliances means that you maybe lose a little less going from four down to two than you might in some other coin games. It does still really work well as a four-player game, though, and as one that examines the intricacies of those relationships. I was fortunate enough to get to help facilitate a Liberty or Death game at the online SD Histcon coin fest this past weekend, and it, that helped really confirm how much I love this game and how much I enjoy teaching it to other people. My next game to talk about here is For the People, which first was published in 1998 by Avalon Hill, of all companies. It's since been reprinted by GMT Games several times. It's a Mark Herman design, and in the most recent printings, the map, cards, and, ca and counter art comes from Mark Simonich, with the package designed by Roger McGowan. McGowan also did the cover art. Ford People is a really cool game. It's a card-driven game on the American Civil War and the grand strategic side of that war. It builds off of Mark Herman's We the People, which was really the first card-driven game, and that was about the American Revolution. For the People is interesting in that it manages to present a whole lot of the problems that either Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis was faced with, and to do so through its cards. There's a very interesting system in terms of the generals involved and how you want to try and get your better generals in charge of bigger armies so that you can activate them more easily, but also that comes with the challenge of possibly taking a strategic will or victory points hit, depending on who else is on the map at that point in time. You can't just promote generals because they're competent at their job. The rules here can be a little tricky to learn, but overall it's a very solid game and one that depicts the overall American Civil War with a lot of nuance and a lot of interesting historical context. Speaking of the American Civil War, that's also where the third game I'm talking about this week comes from, and that's Rebel Raiders on the High Seas, which is a 2013 game from Mark McLaughlin, also published by GMT Games. Mark Simnich and Roger McGowan are again two of the key figures involved in the art here. Rebel Raiders on the High Seas is very cool because it's a very card-driven game focused on the American Civil War in the grand strategy aspect, but with naval warfare really at the center of it. The Confederate player gets to use blockade runners to go out and get cargo and then try to break back into ports, and they can also use raiders to try and prey on shipping. The Union player has to both try to shut down those sea tactics from the Confederates, but they also have to advance their own forces, both on land and through amphibious assaults. For those particularly interested in a strategic look at naval conflict, I think Rebel Raiders on the High Seas is a great game for that. Again, those games are Liberty or Death, For the People, and 
Rebel Raiders on the High Seas. I'm Andrew Buckholz, and you can find me on Twitter at Andrew Buckholz, A-N-D-R-E-W-B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z. You can also find my board game writing at BoardingGame.com. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And like we said at the top of the show, this is a feature special, uh, I can't think of another adjective, uh, episode of uh, three games that will never leave our collection. Um, I, uh, I I didn't know how to approach this. I mean, I, um, I could have, you know, picked my top three games because of the you know, the way that you categorize your games of importance in that manner. But I thought, you know, um, I'm going to look at this from an experiential milestone kind of event of uh, why these three games are staying in my collection and will never leave. And uh, the first one is Crokinole. Um, Crokinole, if you've ever heard me talk, uh, Crokinole, I've played this since I can remember playing games at the lake at a young, young age, and it always being a fabric of my upbringing. Um, we played Crokinole as a family. We played Crokinole to pass time. We played Crokinole to settle uh, uh, brotherly scores, I would say. Um, but uh, And now I have the opportunity to pass this game on to the next generation, my kids. And the... <laughs> I mean, it's one of the best dexterity games ever. Final word. I mean, uh, everything just pales in comparison. You could say that about it. But yeah, Crokinole for me uh, is staying in my collection because it is part of who I am. Um, the next one is uh, going to stay in my collection for what this game uh, provided for me or gave me the ability to accomplish and uh, th this is if you've uh, heard the episode um, uh, favorite memories of board games uh, this is Nemo's War and Nemo's War was a game uh, of importance to me because it was a, a, during a period of, uh, of uh, my family's uh, journey uh, through uh, Daniel's treatment um, Nemo's War gave me the ability to um, detach my brain for a moment and provide respite and uh, uh, the ability to um, take a step away from dread and anxiety and fear uh, every time that, uh, that we had to uh, do something in regards to uh, Daniel's uh, progress. And... Uh, it, it was a game that gave me the ability to focus on something else other than the weight that was going on in my mind. And uh, so for that, uh, Nemo's War, every time I play it, uh, there is that thankfulness I have to this game for giving me the ability to dive into this narrative and uh, completely uh, fall into the suspension of disbelief of of what I was trying to accomplish and why I was trying to accomplish it and, and the risks and the rewards and everything gave me the ability to 
uh, have have a moment to recharge and be capable of of being the person that I was needed to be for that moment. So Nemo's War. Um, then the last one here is uh, <laughs> I, I put a little note here. Um, you never forget your first crush, and uh, this one's Castles of Burgundy. This is a game that for me solidified my uh, uh, full commitment to the this hobby of, of modern board gaming. Uh, this was the game that scratched that itch like I had never thought that a board game could uh, appeal to to the 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 gaming part of my brain it it as my wife says it's my cardboard sedative uh castles of burgundy it, it was perfect because it it was everything different than what i was used to in board games uh, i grew up with risk i grew up with monopoly i grew up with with uh, a lot of take that games and this was not that this was the opposite this was uh a show of how efficient and how clever and how deductive and how intuitive you could be given the circumstances and the uh, items on the board. So I was, I was very pleased when I found that game. And that game is always the same feeling of, of cleverness, I'm going to say. Uh, yeah, so that's Castle Burgundy. So yeah, like I said, Crokinole. Nemo's War and Castles of Burgundy. Those games will never leave my collection. And we are at that uh, time in the show where uh, it's always really fun to say thank you very, very, very much for taking the time to listen to what we have to say. And always a big thank you to the content creators who collaborate every week to put together such a wonderful show. Thank you so much, everybody. And... Uh, as always, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh?